it's not just social media companies, but it's every aspect of your digital life, email delivery services, online fundraising platforms, your ability to sell merchandise that you create on Shopify, uh, your ability to bank online with Stripe. It's everything. Today I sit down with Heritage Foundation Research Fellow Kara Frederick. She previously served as Senior Intelligence Analyst for U.S. Naval Special Warfare Command and spent six years as a counterterrorism analyst for the Department of Defense. Later, she helped create and lead Facebook's global counterterrorism program. Tonight, she breaks down what she sees as an evolving big tech totalitarianism and offers a strategy to rein it in. These practices are frankly mirroring that of what China does in the social credit system. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Kara Frederick, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Kara, you just published a report for the Heritage Foundation. The name is bold, um, and I'm going to need you to justify it for me here. Combating Big Tech's Totalitarianism, a roadmap. So totalitarianism is the word that struck me. Um, a lot of people know about surveillance, sometimes very deep surveillance, some semblance of a social credit system, perhaps. Totalitarianism is a whole nother step. So what are you thinking here? Yeah, so that word in particular, it's a nod to this trend that we identified and we really probed in this report. And that trend is this increasing symbiosis between the government and tech companies. So I, I looked at your last interview with Rod Dreher, who talks about this soft totalitarianism that's plaguing the West now. And he says it's the politicization of everything. As you know, Airbnb refused services to a prominent, um, very conservative voice and her family, Michelle Malkin, um, she can't rent uh, and use that service based off of uh, her political ideas and her viewpoints. Joe Rogan and Spotify, you know, you have the government, uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary for the Biden administration, standing up at the White House podium and saying, singling out a specific company, not even an American company, mind you, but a specific tech company and saying Spotify can do more to combat this, this crisis that she's accused using Joe Rogan of perpetuating, which is the misinformation and disinformation crisis surrounding uh, COVID-19, vaccines, et cetera. And she's done this before. So the, the governments have used tech companies as their agents to chill speech before. And in July, uh, she stood up again at the podium over the summer, along with the Surgeon General, uh, right in tandem, and basically said, yes, there are a couple users and accounts, a few users and accounts, half dozen, in fact, or a, a full dozen um, that we are singling out for purging from the platform. And this platform is Facebook. We are working with Facebook to do so. Within a month, as CNN reported, all of those users and accounts were off the platform and they were gloating in this instance. So it's that integration of the government and big tech companies to police speech that I think is troubling and very evocative of the coming totalitarianism. Um, there's a litany of other examples in addition. Joe Biden uh, in January saying uh, making a direct appeal to tech companies to do this. The Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas also say we're doing this, not even in the context of COVID misinformation, though, in the context of election integrity and election security. So this is becoming pervasive and big tech companies are the willing agents for the government to to have really a heavy hand on the American people. Uh, and then we can talk about, you know, gradations of this totalitarian 
authoritarianism when it comes to a potential coming social credit system and the contours of that developing uh, right now at the hands of these big tech companies. There's, again, a, a litany of abuses that we can talk about that the seeds are developing now. In some instances, it's overt, such as when the January 6th committee called on 35 tech companies to uh, give up their data in terms of people who were not even in the Capitol building on January 6th, but just milling around, and they readily are, are responding to these requests. So in my mind, you have a confluence of data points that absolutely supports the, the politicization of everything, especially in the tech world, the normalization of specific tools that were originally meant for national security purposes, uh, now being repurposed to, to look at misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, and dissenting viewpoints as propagated by Americans on social media. So I, absolutely, this is a, a coming totalitarianism. These practices are frankly mirroring that of what China does in the social credit system. You have to remember that started with private companies as well in specific provinces in the financial sector. Um, so I think it's extremely important for Americans to get their guards up and recognize what's happening as it's happening today. Wow, so you've just given me like basically your whole overview of this, this incredible report that you've put together. Um, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> Before we jump to my next question, which, where I want to kind of explore this sort of this focus on combating misinformation, malinformation, and so forth, this seems to be kind of the play of the day, so to speak, right? But, but tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, how you kind of got here, right? Yeah. You have, I, I was looking at your resume, you have a pretty fascinating kind of uh, I guess, steps to get to your current role now where you're looking at all this. So t tell me about that. Yeah, what's, what's really interesting, and, and not by my own hand or my own design, but all of the experiences that I've been fortunate enough to, to really fall into have built upon each other um, to get me to be able to publicly comment on uh, public policy and try to provide recommendations for how to fix some of these problems that we're seeing emerge now. Um, I, I started out, I, I wanted to be a soccer player. You don't need to know this, but I, was a, I played over in England for Fulham and then was at the end of the season traded to Chelsea. And my dad told me, you need to find a real job. Um, and at the time, there were two wars that were raging. He was a Marine, so I knew I wanted to be part of it at the time. So I ended up getting recruited by a three-letter agency, um, and that was the Defense Intelligence Agency. And once I did that, I you know, EOD'd in January, and I was on a plane to Afghanistan to support Special Operations Forces by the summer. Um, and while I was working in the intelligence community, I was embedded with the National Security Agency. And our whole job there was to basically look at um, digital network uh, intelligence and uh, analyze how terrorist actors moved in the digital space so we could find needles in haystacks effectively, al-Qaeda terrorists. Um, I then moved to a tip of the spear command, uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, um, and then Facebook uh, caught wind of me, and they decided that they needed a counter-terrorist terrorism analysis program for global security. Uh, this is in when ISIS was sort of increasing their propaganda efforts online, when everyone was saying they had these slick videos that were really recruiting terrorists um, on platforms like Facebook, platforms like Twitter. Uh, so Facebook mobilized against it, and they needed people who had experience in the national security bureaucracy um, developing these systems, figuring out these tools, um, assessing and monitoring how terrorists 
moved and acted online so they could transfer some of that knowledge to their you know burgeoning business um, I think the the particular sea change for them was when ISIS had a feature of Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and said we're targeting you guys in particular um, I think there was like bullet holes in Jack Dorsey's head in the video and whatnot and they were like okay this is a big problem we need to work towards fixing it so my job at Facebook when I went to headquarters in Menlo Park was to really help surface high quality publicly available information to help improve those platform based reactions. So in layman's terms, uh, effectively looking at amplifying information around when terrorists attack uh, and help identify if that terrorist had been on the platform in some capacity and basically flag that for the teams that actually took the content down as well as work with the engineers to help build tools to identify those bad actors further so that we can make the platform, as we used to say, hostile to terrorist actors. So, so to take down these videos that you were just describing, basically to be able to identify them quickly and get rid of them. So right? that wasn't my job. That was okay. the community operations team. My job was to basically flag what these bad guys were doing, how they act, and posture later in the future for contesting them. So a good example is on the Berlin Christmas market. Remember, there was a truck attack. Um, so when that happened, you basically, my job was to, I had to be ready at any hour of the day, um, uh, unfurl my laptop out of my backpack that I trekked around with at all times and figure out if what this guy's name was, if he had a Cunha, if he had a nom de guerre or anything like that, and if he was indeed on the platform right now and communicate to executive leadership, you know, is this an actual terrorist attack? Is this just kind of a chaos agent? Um, is there a political motivation behind it. Mm. Who is this guy? Is he on the platform right now? And has, God forbid, he used this, uh, you know, Facebook to conduct operational planning. That was our worst nightmare. So we had to guard against that at all costs and basically communicate that up the chain. And then afterwards, you do an after action review that results in how do we improve our processes on the platform to make sure this guy, number one, can't get on the platform to begin with. And number two, if he conducts an attack like this, is not on the platform, spewing his hate, inspiring copycat attacks into the future. So it was a 24-7, uh, we encompassed the whole globe when it came to these terrorist attacks, but, but also really looking at how they behave online, their digital practices, and using that to inform uh, going forward various um, you know, permutations of uh, bad guys so that we could head them off in advance. Um, I mean, absolutely fascinating. I can imagine that a lot of our viewers, including and myself, are now thinking to ourselves, wow, okay, so that, that, that feels like a very uh, powerful set of tools to be using, to be developing, and those could be used uh, against other people as well, right? And this is kind of what, you're, what, what is some of the substance of your report right now. Precisely. And what worries me is that those tools can, you know, not just apply directly, but inspire at least the, the creation of tools that are then turned inward on the American population for things like dissenting viewpoints. Um, so I, you know, I believe that there are genuine problems on these platforms, right? Human trafficking, um, advertisements for drug cartels, um, CSAM, which is uh, child sexual abuse material, uh, child exploitation and pornography and real foreign Islamic 
terrorist content. You know, those are real issues, not to mention state-linked influence operations where you have bots that are farmed out to patriotic citizens by the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, to sort of spew bile all over the internet or cheerlead for the CCP. So big, real problems, right? So it's very important that we do have people within these companies working on that. Well, and, and potentially homegrown terrorism and things like that, like those things that does happen, right? Yep, yeah. yep. Then those yeah. problems do exist. But I think in terms of, of resource allocation, I'm kind of detecting uh, what I would call a very troubling trend to focus on right-leaning content, um, dissenting content. So this is the big problem, right? We have failed to agree on a definition of Inf uh, misinformation and disinformation and what you know actual uh, organic sort of influence operations are versus state-linked influence operations from nefarious actors. Right now, disinformation, it seems to be a catch-all for views that the left doesn't like, that the Biden regime doesn't like. Um, no more demonstrative examples exist other than the Hunter Biden laptop story, the lab leak um, from the Wuhan Institute of Virology that was these two things were considered misinformation at the time, and you would be censored, suspended, or banned from Facebook and Twitter um, and other social and, media. And publicly vilified in polite society, right? Precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. yeah, Tom Cotton was uh, lambasted as a conspiracy theorist uh, before, and then all of a sudden you have more mainstream uh, outlets actually reporting on the, the potential lab leak as a theory, and, and it's okay now because, you know, what a, a New York magazine said it. Uh, so, so to me, and the reputations like Dr. Robert Malone in terms of, you know, any sort of dissent from the prevailing orthodoxy, these heterodox voices, uh, these people who, who frankly are, you know, classical liberals who just question um, and, and really do believe that science is a process of evaluation um, and, 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 you know, deep intellectual debate and rigor. You have these people being absolutely vilified, being, uh, you know, eschewed from these platforms and jettisoned for being kooks. And we can't agree on what misinformation actually means. Because right now, again, there's a, a disproportionate focus, I think, on uh, misinformation as anything that dissents from the prevailing narrative and that is extremely pro problematic if you start to use these tools originally created for noble purposes to uh, and appropriate them to target these dissenters. It doesn't look like America in that instance. Well, okay, so we definitely need to talk, again, it goes back to misinformation, right? How are we going to, is there some point at which it's acceptable to censor misinformation? We're going to talk about that in a sec. Before we go there, you know, this is, you know, I think around 2017 when you're at Facebook, how close is the government working with Facebook compared to how close the government appears to be, because you're no longer there, to be working with Facebook now? Oh, and let's just say big tech in general, you yeah. know, not to single out Facebook necessarily, but you have that, that experience. Yep. So in my experience, uh, there's, there's a very clear pattern, right? You have these CSAM teams, so teams devoted to countering child exploitation on these platforms. So they were sort of the first, uh, in my experience, to be built out. Like they had their information security engineers, uh, you had your analysts, you had your, your cross-functional teams, as we called them. So community operations, policy teams, everybody sort of works together to contest this one big problem of child exploitation. 
Revolution, and they had a great robust apparatus created there. And originally, they they did have to talk to the government because there are various institutions um, like the FBI that really work on this stuff, and they have that institutional knowledge that Facebook at the time didn't really have. Hence, the reason why they poached from a lot of intel agencies to, and brought them over to sort of give them that semblance of augustness, right? People have been working on these problems for a long time in bureaucracies that had hammered out these problems and worked on these problems for decades. So that apparatus to counter child sexual abuse material was really in place at the time. Then we kind of piggybacked off that. Um, we even poached some of their infosec bodies uh, to use on the foreign Islamic counterterrorism problem. So there's a little bit of a pattern like pulling from, you know, the people who've done it before, the tried and true uh, uh, to, to bring their knowledge and their know-how to that specific team. Um, and now you're sort of seeing that's happening too, but the, the counterterrorism issue being expanded to look at more right-leaning, right-wing kind of expression. And don't get me wrong, there's real problems that exist in the right-wing atmosphere. There's real terrorist attacks that have actually occurred, especially overseas in, in New Zealand and Norway, um, based off of, you know, right-wing terrorism. But there seems to be some sort of definition inflation uh, that we're seeing in other realms of of the U.S. too, like with the National School Board Association telling Merrick Garland that parents who are against CRT are actually domestic terrorists and then or extremists and then Merrick Garland moving within five days according to Representative Jim Jordan to basically institute that terrorist tagging system uh, within our, our counterterrorism entities here in, in the US so so I think that is very very problematic but the pattern is also very interesting to see how they build it out in um, tech companies themselves and with building it out they do work with the government they do work law enforcement response requests and whatnot. They have whole teams dedicated to, at least in 2017, um, working with the government when it came to child sexual abuse material. Of course, when it comes to foreign Islamic terrorism, there has to be some sort of connection as well with the entities that do it best in the government. But but for, for what I'm seeing, it's starting to become a little worrisome because that closeness uh, is getting more and more integrated and looking pretty odious for a regular dissenting American who's, say, questioning uh, COVID-19 orthodoxy. Well, no, exactly. But so going after child exploitation, people who are involved in child exploitation, these images and stuff like that, that doesn't strike me as a, you know, countering misinformation operation. So, you know, tell me, tell me what you think. When I look at you know, I guess the, the the trajectory of when this kind of became a thing. This is post 2016. This is post uh, uh, Donald Trump becoming president. Uh, we have this, you know, video of the Google, like it's a town hall or something. People are saying, "Oh my goodness, how could we have allowed this horrific thing?" Um, we, we have, you know, basically politicians telling social media, "We're gonna." be hard on you unless you deal with this problem, right? So there's this kind of politicization happening. And now it seems like, at least to, to my eye, and this is where you can actually help me understand, it seems like that's when this whole kind of focus on misinformation grew. And I, I, I would say metastasize, that's not, that's kind of a, I guess, reveals, reveals my, my perspective on it. But first question, is this when this all grew? How do you see that? And second question, in your mind, is there a place where combating misinformation is actually appropriate, right, at all? Yep, 
So I completely agree with you. I think you hit the nail on the head. It was that 2016, remember when Cambridge Analytica, that scandal uh, was reported and people were like, oh no, the reason why Donald Trump got elected was because of Facebook. And that became the prevailing idea. And so Facebook really tried to defend itself. And one of the things they did that was revealed by the Facebook whistleblower in the Facebook files that the Wall Street Journal ended up publishing last fall was that they created two internal tools that actively suppressed very conservative outlets. So this is in the wake of Donald Trump's victory, uh, and they realized, uh, you know, Facebook lives and dies by its internal tools. And they realized that they needed to do something because they were getting hammered, hammered by the media, hammered by other Democratic politicians, just absolutely hammered by the public as the ones who were the architects of this horrible Trump regime. So they, they care about their brand and reputation very much. Much, so they moved to sort of counter that and one of them was creating those tools that ended up suppressing outlets that that are very conservative in nature one of those tools still in use as of October 2021 um, and they figured we need to sort of show our work here and show that we are uh, in fact not on the side of Donald Trump um, but I think you're exactly right and that's when you know people you had people new employees flooding into uh, these companies that were on fire for that mission they were like we are going to ensure that this never happens again. Uh, Frances Haugen even admitted that the reason why she went to Facebook to work on the election team was because she didn't want anyone to fall prey to, um, and I'm extrapolating here, but what I think is right-wing ideology because her friend was from the Midwest and he fell into the misinformation trap, according to her, etc. So you have a new wave of employees who are very gung-ho about this. They see it as a mission. You have all that exogenous pressure on Facebook as well, uh, the building of new and internal tools to, to really contest that narrative from the outside. And that did, in fact, uh, I think, change the trajectory of the company to one that was sort of a democratizer of information, uh, linking the world, connecting communities, building communities online. Um, they, they sort of dropped uh, that sort of motto um, and, and really changed. And I think that um, <laughs> I myself sat through the, the leaked footage of the Google town hall on that Friday that you talked about. And um, when Sergey Brin got up there and said, the reason why we think people voted for Trump, we can't even relate. It's crazy. They must be enthralled to some form of extremism. I think that is a data point to, to sort of cling to because uh, as Molly Hemingway reported in her book Rigged, um, she a journalist, she basically said that um, they had plans to um, take a, uh, a company, one of the technology incubators called Jigsaw from Google, who, which was originally created to combat foreign Islamic terrorism, they had plans to or act, thought or brainstormed the ideas of making sure that we could, you know, maybe use some of our technologies to combat the extremism of the Trump voters. So you sort of start to see that that inflation, the definition of inflation creep into the lexicons of the top executives in these tech companies. And and I think a lot of their employees, the product managers at that mid layer of bureaucracy in these uh, companies followed suit. I have to smile. You've mentioned this uh, definition inflation. I, it's the first time I've heard this particular jargon. It's interesting, but it's sort of, it's it, to me, it's uh, a way you can describe some of how this, uh, for, for lack of a better term, woke ideology functions, right? Yep. So anything that isn't in concert with this, basically the, the way the, the woke, so to speak, view the world becomes something 
very extreme and something that must be fought against and something you know it, so <laughs> definition inflation is kind of a is, is kind of a funny way to describe this that's what I was thinking as yeah we were credit where credit is due I actually poached that from Barry Weiss when she was talking about similar instances a, a couple months ago um, and I think it's very apropos I think when you expand a definition that traditionally means one thing to encompass anything basically to the right of it uh, that you're expanding that definition in a, in a major way and we saw this in in so many instances too um, I'd bring up Kyle Rittenhouse uh, when he uh, defended himself and was acquitted for killing two people in self-defense in Kenosha Wisconsin during the BLM riots when they were burning down businesses and he was defending um, a place where his father had lived where he worked etc uh, Joe Biden in a campaign ad said that he was a uh, white supremacist um, and you saw sort of that language it starts with the, the whole white supremacy and then it starts to expand to that he's an extremist you saw that in actual democratic politicians on their twitter feeds and whatnot uh, they're saying it over and over again so they're taking you know a very tightly defined definition of something something actually very very bad and noxious and they're expanding it to include anybody who potentially could disagree with blm and their motivations etc so we're seeing this in so many instances um, especially after january 6th when deputy station chiefs at the cia former guys are writing um, articles about how we should treat republicans as uh, taliban facilitators and whatnot so so you're starting to see uh, that occur and that is something i think we we need to be on the lookout for and and arrest right now or else it's only going to get worse okay and we're going to talk a lot about solutions because you do you do outline some of that in, in your report. What about disinformation, misinformation, malinformation? I, I mean, I don't even know exactly what malinformation is, but um, what do you think it's ever acceptable for a platform to do this? Or is it just free speech and everything should be acceptable, right? That, it, that isn't illegal. Yep. But even that, right? Even that. I mean, these are questions I'm asking myself. Mm -hmm. I'm horrified by some of the um, like child exploitation stuff, the porn, some some of the stuff that's kind of rampant on some of the um, some of these platforms, the the biggest platforms, right? Yep. So, no, no, I don't want that stuff there. <laughs> on the other hand, right? Isn't it? You can't you just pass laws to make whatever it is that you feel like you want to be illegal illegal, and all of a sudden, yeah, hey, it's illegal to to say you know very what what a year ago were very basic things, right? Yeah. Is it ever acceptable? I, I definitely think it's acceptable. Um, but the problem is tech companies have taken it too far. And this is where you get into the Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, a reform of that specific statute. We're thinking, okay, there's an otherwise objectionable clause that basically protects community or uh, tech companies from civil liability. It gives them immunity from civil liability if they remove speech and content uh, based off of um, a bunch of, you know, defined things and then they say an otherwise objectionable content and tech companies have really taken that and run with it and used it to sort of censor all kinds of political viewpoints and whatnot so they've they've been given an inch and they've taken a mile uh, however when it comes to and this is how I sort of parse it out state linked 
disinformation and influence operations. Granted, attribution is very, very difficult, especially when these state-linked actors deliberately outsource uh, the purveying of this disinformation to you know regular citizens, to fringe news outlets that then pass it to some trusted outlets. So it's a, it's a very, I would say almost an intractable problem, but companies I think need to focus more on those sorts of things. And that's when you know purging sort of genuine state-linked bad actor, foreign actor, uh, foreign disinformation is is a good thing. I think that they need to start there. And I do think it, it originally did start there, but it just, as you said, metastasized into something very, very different. And that was, you know, with the Hunter Biden laptop story, again, the Wuhan um, Institute of Virology lab leak uh, theory and, and whatnot. I think they've, they've basically taken that charge, which was originally a noble charge, and and gone too far because they don't pay a cultural price for this you know they don't pay a cultural price for uh, purging Marjorie Taylor Greene off of Twitter they don't pay a cultural price for purging representative Jim Banks or suspending him or you know Rand Paul or taking down a Clarence Thomas documentary from Amazon uh, right now yes the public is catching wind and they're saying okay this might be a problem but you have accusations that all of these things are they're they're anecdotal and but I say believe your lying eyes. All of these mistakes are, are going in one direction. And we're starting to have studies coming out of organizations that are saying, yeah, conservatives and people who support Republican politicians and Republican Congress members themselves, they are in fact treated differently on these platforms. But, you know, to date, uh, this is pretty much, it, it hasn't necessarily flown under the radar, but it's not really affecting their bottom line. You know, their stock prices keep going up and up and up. So until they actually pay a price for this wanton censorship, uh, companies are going to keep doing what they're doing. And I think it's very important to note that it's not just confined to social media companies either. And we talked about this a little bit in the beginning with Airbnb denying services to Michelle Malkin because of her, you know, incendiary viewpoints. But it's coming at Spotify now, which is a media services company, not even headquartered in the U.S. It's coming at uh, GoFundMe, you know, or they're they're instituting it themselves. Um, these are online fundraising platforms. Kickstarter has done it before, too, when it comes to um, anti-abortion and pro-life content um, that are that's being advertised on their platforms. So it's, it's hitting every node of your digital life, which is extremely problematic because we're going to be hemmed in more and more anyone, you know, not just conservatives, but people with with heterodox views or, you know, people with heterodox views tomorrow because we don't know what's going to be considered um, against whatever is the prevailing narrative tomorrow. It changes so suddenly and so fast. But I think the GoFundMe point is, is particularly interesting okay. because you have a company that with the Kyle Rittenhouse saga, again, they actively denied contributions to Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense fund because pretty much Kyle set himself in opposition to BLM and all of its its protests and, and its motivations. Um, so they said nobody can donate to him, yet they themselves donated hundreds of dollars to the rioters, to the, the BLM uh, protesters and people who are actively burning down buildings in Wisconsin. Now with um, the Canadian trucker convoy, um, so the Canadian truckers are, are in Ottawa right now. They're shutting down certain roads and whatnot to sort of pressure the government to, to drop its vaccine mandate for, for truckers. 
uh, GoFundMe amassed 10 million Canadian dollars to distribute and help this convoy. And now they're saying, you know, we already distributed 1 million. We They initially said they're going to take 9 million of those Canadian dollars and give it to verified charities of their own choice. People were like, no, there's a legitimate case for fraud here. So now they're going to say that they're distributing it to everybody. But bottom line... Distributing it back to oh, the yes, to sorry, users because that's their usual model. Precisely. Right? Precisely. Yeah. Um, instead of giving it to charities of their choice when they've already donated to BLM rioters and whatnot, which is problematic in and of itself. And the Ottawa government, GoFundMe is an American company, and the Ottawa government, Trudeau himself, said um, that they were working with GoFundMe to actually stop the distribution of uh, these finances to keep the trucker convoy going. That, I mean, we can't even voice, at, at this point, we can't even voice our, our opinion by donating money on these digital services. Um, it happens with email delivery services as well. It happens with internet service providers. They're taking down websites, refusing to host sites that have different political views than, you know, than those that conform to woke ideology, like, again, the, the pro-life stance. So I think this is, it's important for people to understand that it's not just social media companies or your right to be on Twitter, your right to be on Facebook. It's everything. Email delivery services, online fundraising platforms, your ability to, to get a creative project going, the regular person's ability to have a, a business on Instagram, um, your ability to sell merchandise that you create on Shopify, um, uh, your ability to bank online with Stripe. We know that 17 digital platforms mobilized within two weeks in early January to suspend or ban President Trump from their platforms it can happen to the everyday user as well. So I think it, it's critical that we realize it's not just social media companies, but it's every aspect of your digital life, which is life into perpetuity. So what do you make of this new uh, DHS bulletin that focuses on, you know, basically focuses the agency's posture towards further countering of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation? I think it's that linking of disinformation with terrorism. And I think that these institutions, they have definitions for a reason. They call things terrorism for a reason because you can, once you label something terrorism, you can then mobilize the robustness of the entire U.S. national security apparatus developed in the wake of the September 11th attacks. And you can mobilize them against anyone that you're accusing of terrorism. And when you link disinformation, malinformation, misinformation with terrorism, that gives them license to do a variety of things under a variety of specialized authorities um, and visit them against the uh, purveyor of this disinformation or misinformation. What's extremely troubling is that definition is, is not tightly defined, right? You're not even talking necessarily about those state-linked actors I was talking about earlier. You're talking about people that are questioning the, uh, you know, what we're allowed to say about COVID today. And we we know that questioning the, the efficacy of cloth masks, again, questioning uh, wh where the origins of COVID, we knew that all of these things were one time considered misinformation. So anybody who, who does that as the science continues to change, are they now terrorists too? That to me is they're, they're, they're operating in a nebulous, opaque space on purpose. And that is to potentially normalize the use of those authorities against people with a specific uh, a thought pattern.
Um, and even more troubling, I don't know if you remember, but uh, it, the creation of a new domestic terrorism unit under DOJ was announced recently, too. And the rationale for that was um, to target people who had anti-authority authority or anti-government ideologies. So now you're not allowed to uh, protest against the government. Now you're not allowed to dissent against the government. You link that with disinformation, you link that with social media, and you link that with terrorism, and you have a cocktail that is um, a very, very scary going forward for the average American who believes in a genuine marketplace of ideas, who wants to uh, refine their own thinking against that of others and arrive at proper conclusions. That is, that is what America is all about. That is what the freedom of expression and free, freedom of speech is all about. And right now, they're, they're cutting that off at the knees, and they're outsourcing a lot of it to tech companies and working together with them to do so. And I think this is just another, uh, this is basically supercharging the trend that's already underway and giving it the full force of the United States government and national security authorities to boot. What strikes me about you know the last few years of let's say you know the the official the official narrative it it's almost like the vast majority of the prominent official narratives turn out to be false it's almost like if you were going to make a commercial to explain why it would be a bad idea to have this these kinds of rules that you that you were just describing i don't think you could make a better one in a way, right? Oh, exactly. Because there's, I mean, yeah, virus origins is a great example, but what about, for example, natural immunity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If anything, you, you would have to have very robust studies to show that that doesn't work because it's usually the case, right? But somehow it just hasn't existed. And now we're kind of seeing rumblings again after a couple of years, you know, that, oh, natural immunity is actually, yes, it's robust. Oh, this is this really interesting that this actually works. But, you know, being being very very wrong for several years with with actually devastating social consequences right exactly so and that's why these companies originally shied away from being labeled arbiters of truth. They would say, we don't want to be arbiters of truth because they know how hard it is to get at the truth. Um, and you're exactly right. The natural immunity issue, uh, the fact that the, the cloth mask efficacy issue, the fact that lockdowns, uh, the Johns Hopkins study that recently said, mm, lockdowns pretty much don't, they have a, a negligible, if any, effect. And My comment and, was just going to be that we've known for more than a year that the social cost, I mean, there's these various types of analyses have been done that the social cost of lockdowns is greater, right, than, than the cost of the virus to people. That Lots of these studies have been done. But you're, to your point, again, right, again, the, the, the social cost of this so-called disinformation suppression we've seen it's massive yes right yes and and it, that is something that is i think often absent from the conversation surrounding tech companies and what to do about them and how they're working with the government uh to to basically entrench these narratives that that pretty much always change based off of when the truth actually does come out. Um, I think it's very problematic when the government and tech companies set themselves up as the gatekeepers of, of all information. Um, I think the, the Hunter Biden laptop story is a very good example of this too, where you have um, all of those IC uh, inter, uh, intelligence community officials coming out and saying, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Um, and this kind of thing has consequences. So we talked a little bit about the cultural 
cultural consequences, but the political implications of this. Um, there's a, a study done by the Media Research Center last year that frankly said one in six Biden voters in swing states would have changed their vote had they been aware of information that was actively suppressed by big tech companies, and that includes the Hunter Biden laptop story. So there are, you're, you're nudging people in specific directions. They're um, percolating over things in their mind before they pull that lever in the ballot box. So there are real political implications for all of this, for you know, a tech company is hand in glove with the government actually getting it wrong. So there's some political uh, issues there. And then the cultural impacts too, I think these are huge. You know, the march to the social credit system notwithstanding, but what about the impacts on the next generation of American citizens? And this is what sort of gets my goat about TikTok in particular, is that that is marketed to uh, a younger and younger demographic, right? We talk about this as the race to the bottom. That's a, a quote from one of the Democratic senators who's pursuing this, but there's a race to the bottom among these tech companies to grab that youth uh, demographic, the preteen demographic, hence the reason why uh, Instagram is creating an Instagram for 13-year-olds and under. Um, they're trying to really hook these kids uh, with their own discrete platforms based off specifically for them because of the growth at all costs mindset. But what about the cultural impacts of introducing these devices and putting them in the hands of, of young teenagers? I mean, we have, or preteens even, we haven't even begun to, to plumb the depths of some of those effects and those impacts. We know that Facebook did a bunch of internal research, again, leaked uh, in the Facebook files in the Wall Street Journal, and they found that um, a litany of, you know, studies like one in three women, when they felt bad about their bodies to begin with, Instagram made them feel worse, and on and on and on. Um, there's some interesting data from that the Wall Street Journal also reported on, separate from the Facebook files, about TikTok and how there are there's a massive uptick in cases of young girls going into hospitals with cases of potential Tourette's and ticks. And what they all had in common, yes, the pandemic and the atomization induced by the pandemic and with everyone having devices in their hands absolutely played a role. But everything that those cases had in common was the fact that they followed influencers on TikTok. Um, and Abigail Schreier writes often about the social contagion and the social media cheerleaders uh, that fan the flames of gender dissatisfaction in young girls and how pervasive this is on YouTube. You know, there's a reason why big tech executives don't give their kids devices. Uh, Sundar Pichai, head of Google, said so himself in a 2018 New York Times interview that his then 11-year-old son didn't even have a device. Steve Jobs, famously did not let his kid have an iPad. So, uh, you know, I, I tell people that that tells you all you need to know about these cultural impacts on a next generation of citizen that is just plump, just uh, absolutely inundated with all kinds of influences that we don't necessarily want um, as, as, as people who are trying to raise um, good, solid um, souls that are formulated appropriately to the good. Well, and you know, with TikTok, right, as an example, which is arguably the most aggressively kind of invasive of these technologies, you know, that's even basically arguably under the power of a foreign power that doesn't mean good for America. Exactly. Right. So that I will. I I don't think we even have the scope to go into that here, but you know, when you were talking about TikTok, it just gives me that extra bit of a chill, right? Yep. As I look at this whole situation that you've just described, I kind of see an accelerating, almost, you know, 
leviathan of technology, ideology, um, censorship, pushing, pushing in the same direction. Um, some people that I've spoken with are concerned that it's kind of unstoppable at this point. You have some ideas about solutions or how to stop it or change things. What would you say here at this point? Because you, you've described a really, really challenging, potentially intractable yep. problem here, right? Yeah, I think in order to, to sort of stem the tide um, and hopefully reverse it to to really redress that imbalance between the consolidation of power and abusing that by tech companies uh, hand in glove with the government to um, redress the balance between that and the American people I think you need to diversify your tactics I think you basically need to have an array of policy options not just for Congress and relevant federal agencies but also options that trickle down to civil society uh, state legislatures uh, state attorney generals um, tech founders and new entrants and other tech companies. I think you need to basically hit them with everything to arrest the progress towards this totalitarianism that we're talking about in the paper. So what we say is get at that that number one bottom line at all cost priority, the user growth at all cost priority as the, the second and the third uh, brand and reputation. To sort of attack that, you have to employ um, multifarious solutions. Um, you start with enforcing antitrust laws you know the they've consolidated all of this power there they do have anti-competitive practices you have to clearly define them and have very um, strict limiting principles on that but at the same time laws exist to be enforced so let relevant federal agencies after congressional oversight actually enforce those laws and if tweaks need to be made to to sort of cut into these abuses then I think that should be on the table. I'm just well. going to cut in here, but agencies at the moment seem to be going in the other direction, right? That's that's what we've been talking about today. Yep, that's problematic. But I still believe in America, this republic, right? And it's messy. But I do believe that uh, conservatives, at some point, or people who actually believe in freedom of expression, will eventually be able to exercise that power at some point. I still think there are good people within these agencies who do want to do the right thing, and this is also the reason why. We're not saying that the solution is government. We're not saying that the solution exists in these uh, these federal agencies whatsoever. Hence, the the spreading of 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 our all of our manner of solutions and the ability to get after that has to be distributed among all sorts of options. So that's just one tiny little option. Um, another option, I think, is cutting into that ad tech model, scrutinizing that ad tech model. That is the beating heart of these tech companies. That is what Zuckerberg is going to pay attention to if somebody starts talking about you know the way that they make their money so scrutinizing that making it much more difficult for these companies to to gather to micro target to exploit the data of users um, and on that note there has to be some sort of data privacy framework um, I think data privacy legislation should absolutely be next on the agenda for Congress the American user should know how their data is 
is stored, collected, whom it's shared with, how it's used. There should be time limits, uh, limits on indefinite storage. There should be privacy protections imbued in uh, the, the data and the design of these products themselves. That's critical. And then transparency. That is one thing. Let tech companies tell us, the American people, how they got to where they, they got. And that is in terms of content moderation, behaviors and practices, give us impact assessments. When were you wrong? How many times were you wrong? When were these accounts restored? Why were they taken down? Were they just suspended? What's the, the, uh, the granularity here? Let the American people know. In addition to algorithmic transparency, we shouldn't have to wait until Francis Haugen leaks a trove of documents to know that in 2018, Facebook tweaked its algorithm to maximize user engagement and make content more incendiary surface easily at your, on your newsfeed. Um, and then lastly, that data transparency element as well. Again, users in plain, clear English terms should be aware of how their data is used, stored, collected, and shared absolutely critical. Uh, and then that's sort of how the government can play a role in giving some teeth to this legislation so that tech companies actually decide that, hey, uh, we don't think our, our self-policing is working anymore because they are absolutely breathing down our necks. So give some teeth, have that public availability component, that's absolutely critical. And then state legislators, again, are, are labs of democracy, right? They can figure out what works. The attorney generals have, you know, they have a higher degree, I believe, of efficacy than the federal government because it's sclerotic, it's lumbering, it's much slower, and states can move a lot faster. So let a thousand ideas among the states bloom. I think we need to be able to, to allow them to have imagination to attack this problem. And that's state legislatures and attorney, general as, attorney generals as well. And then tech founders have a huge duty here, a huge responsibility to build in a way that they're very cognizant of what big tech can do to new entrants and new platforms like Twitter competitor Parler, right? It was kicked off of Google Play. It was kicked off the Apple's App Store when it was sitting at the very top of the store at number one. And then when Amazon Web Services pulled the plug from them and refused to offer them cloud hosting services, they went lights out. And they're, they're back now, but not as originally conceived. So tech founders have a duty to remember that and build with business models that are um, encompass the full technology stack that maybe offer cloud hosting services too so that they are insulated from being completely shut down by bigger tech companies that they're beholden to. So huge um, uh, distribution of, of responsibility. I think civil society has a role too uh, when it comes to these platforms effects on, on teen girls that they know that they're propagating and they want to keep going and even supercharge it. You know, parents should be up in arms about this. Parents should be um, phone at the mouth to, to stop all of this. So there's a, a civil society and grassroots outcry that I think needs to occur as well. So those are just some examples. There's many more in the paper, but I think it, there needs to be a full-throated, fulsome response to some of these abuses, and especially in the way that they're working with the government. That should be prohibited. Using tech companies as agents of the government to chill speech, absolutely prohibited. <laughs> also, the joint ventures with Chinese companies, such as Tim Cook's uh, deal to, to the tune of $275 billion with China, 
should also be prohibited as well. There's there's no reciprocity there. Uh, they take and they take and they take from us. They put their spokespeople on our platforms to spew propaganda. We have no um, uh, visibility really or purchase on their digital platforms at all. So why are they allowed on our digital platforms too? So just a couple ideas for you. And, uh, and I think pursuing all of them at once, an array of option is really gonna get us to the final solutions that we're looking for and the shaping of behavior by these companies working with the government. So it strikes me that if any country, uh, if any system has the tools, you know, perhaps initiated by the founding fathers way back when to counter some sort of government giant industry fusion or collaboration, it strikes me it should be the US, mm -hmm. right? And so what are, the, what are those tools that should be deployed now, right? By that perhaps in the constitution, perhaps in other places in the legal system. You're describing, as I said earlier, a, a very difficult and you know, immediately serious problem. And at least I don't, it, there doesn't appear to be, aside from a really well done report, you know, a, a ton of response. And, and, and actually, to be fair, a lot of building of these ind independent ecosystems and tech stacks and so forth, that, that is definitely happening. I think it starts with diagnosing the problem accurately, right? So we have to understand and impress upon people that we have specific rights that are given to us by God, enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, like the freedom of speech, that can be infringed upon by these massive private companies, especially when they're working with the government. So I think people need to recognize how that really cuts into human flourishing first and foremost. And that, you know, instead of saying they're private companies, they can do whatever they want, recognize that that's so a problem. So basically here you're saying this is the thing that's stifling the conservative response. Is that, that's what I'm hearing from you, right? It, is that, yeah. I, I would say the laggards in the conservative response because okay. people get it now. Most of conservatives, you know, get it now. And then you understand that, you diagnose the problem accurately and not just its economic components, but its cultural and its political components as well. Those should be embedded and those imperatives should be understood when you're formulating any uh, any solutions whatsoever. So it starts with that. It starts with properly diagnosing the problem, which I think a lot of people, not just on, on the right, on the left too, they've absolutely failed to do that. And and when it comes to the left too, where are all my, my individual liberty lovers, my civil rights, my civil liberties um, stalwarts, where are they right now? Are they that tribal that these you know principles that they said that they hold so dear uh, are being infringed upon that they're not gonna speak out against this? when it comes to digital surveillance, outsourcing this to private companies, uh, when it, digital surveillance, as I was saying before, and the exploitation of, of user privacy and data, why, why isn't the left clamoring for this? Just because it's politically convenient, because their side is the one visiting all of these harms on the people? So, you know, that's one thing. So accurately diagnose it, realize it has political and cultural implications, as well as the economic ones too. Um, and then I think we, we sort of need to think through, you know, clearly threading the needle, dealing with it in a way where you're trying to influence the behavior of these companies, but you're acknowledging that they they do uh, help Americans sort of project power in the world, et cetera, et cetera. 
not when they're working necessarily with the CCP. Um, so I think that's critical. The other element is <laughs> what you alluded to before is a, a willingness and a courage, I think, with within um, people with oversight capabilities like Congress members to actually call this out, see it with clear eyes for what it is, and be brave and take a take a stance and say, no, we are going to put pressure on these companies to change, be more in line with American values. Because right now, I'll tell you what struck me the most going to these company or the, the particular company that I worked for was, was just a lack of both gratitude and cognition of the fact that they thrived and they flourished under a distinctly American system. Because of America, they were able to amass all of this largesse and, and innovate and build all these really interesting things for the, the, the people of the world. So I recognize that they're global companies, but when it comes to the reason why they've been so successful, it's because of America and our unique system. So I think companies need to recover a sense of being American again, because you hear an argument these days that big tech companies are, uh, they are the bulwark against Chinese aggression. They're gonna help us win the race against China. Not if the, they're working, when if Jeff Bezos is working with a CCP propaganda arm, not if Tim Cook is paying China with $275 billion to contribute to their development, uh, not if Zoom is acquiescing to uh, the directives from the CCP to get a human rights activist off of one of their calls. Um, the list goes on and on and on. So I think companies, they, they need to be distinctly American again, recognizing that yes, we do have a global constituency, but that sense of, of gratitude, that sense of all of us as a nation pulling towards one common goal, I think that's been lost if it was ever recognized in the first place. And we need to, as, as companies and people who work in these companies, recover that again. And I think Congress members with their oversight capabilities need to remind them that that's the case as well. They need to impose costs when Tim Cook strikes a deal uh, with China, when uh, Google is actively working with PLA-linked um, AI research labs in Beijing. Uh, this needs to be on the table to, for us to be able to say no, for Congress to, to be brave and say, absolutely not, although my stock portfolio is going up because of you guys, this is against American interests. So recovering that sense of a duty to America and a gratitude for, for what it's been able to do and create for these executives and the people who work under them, formerly my former self included, I think that's absolutely critical. And what it does is it starts here. It starts in Congress members being brave, calling them out, recognizing that this is a problem and taking measures to rectify it. As we finish, one last tiny thought, you know, for a lot of people out there, they might wonder to themselves, you know, there's not much I can do here other than something you mentioned, which is keep my kids off of those platforms, right? Is there anything that people can do? Yeah, I think make sure you diversify what services you're using uh, because you're, you never know when you're going to go lights out if you have an anti-regime, uh, anti-authoritarian, anti-government opinion. So make sure that you're using um, the, the platforms that are being created by these new entrants. Uh, I won't name them specifically, but I think we're starting to see these competitors come up as they recognize the challenge, as they try to take on these, uh, you know, real monopolistic practices of these big tech companies. So uh, make sure that your privacy is first and foremost as well. So using companies that are 
actually devoted to privacy preserving technologies and developing them and deploying them, that's critical too. And also remain human. I think there's a huge push when it comes to these companies trying to uh, look into the future and project what's uh, going to make them more profitable, uh, like the metaverse. You know, they want to immerse you in these virtual worlds, stay human. Um, and this is something that James Poulos at the Claremont Institute does really, really well um, and elucidating this idea that, you know, remember that you are a body soul composite. Uh, we were created in a specific way with dignity for, for specific purposes. And and that's not to lose ourselves completely in a virtual world. Stay human. Well, Kara Frederick, such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you.